0: this is the Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, here we go. Welcome to the show. I hope you are ready to engage in Wrong Think today because we got a lot to talk about here today. And I'm going to dive right in. And I'm going to point out that you don't have to be a diehard Trump supporter to have a very healthy skepticism of the mass media and the official election narrative that they're pushing I mean look I, I admit I voted for Trump this time around I would not consider myself one of his <clears throat> die hard supporters but I the main reason I voted for the man was because of what his opponents his most staunch opponents were doing and what they were like and how they've conducted themselves over the last four years I've never seen a more power-hungry bunch of people in my life. Worse, power-hungry and unprincipled, as in, we must do whatever it takes, by any means necessary. I believe that's actually their own words. They have to find some way to remove him from power. And I'm going to just tell you flat up, I don't think that Donald Trump holds the key to solving all of America's problems. There are some things that he's actually been very good on. There are other things where I'm like, yeah, he's, he's part of the problem too. But the main strength of why I would cast my vote for a guy like Donald Trump is he's not them. Because the them I'm looking at are, uh, they're a scary bunch. Lusting after power, lusting to d- d- dominate and to punish, you know, those who don't see things the way they do. I mean, I've heard people say, look, Trump is an example of the worst that politics has to offer. In some ways, that may be true. He's definitely a mirror of what Americans are willing to tolerate in terms of of a candidate. This is why I couldn't vote for him in 2016. But the flip side of that coin is his opposition is hardly an example of the best that American politics has to offer of men and wisdom, men and women rather of wisdom and goodness and honesty. Nope, not even close. In fact, if anything, they are um, angry, reality uh, impaired power mongers and power seekers. That's a scary bunch. I mean, they're they're openly right now. Because they think this thing's in the bag, you know. They, they refer to President elect Biden over and over again. Um, the, the contest has not ended yet. Things may look favorable for Biden, but the electors haven't cast their votes. The questions behind some of the uh, irregularities or potential uh, inconsistencies in the vote tabulating have not yet been resolved but they're just full steam ahead, full steam ahead. If we say it enough, if we say it loudly and audaciously enough, you have to believe it. And maybe it would be more believable if I wasn't looking back over the last four and a half years and seeing that uh, this has been their goal all along. They couldn't believe he got elected in the first place. They couldn't believe that Trump could actually be elected to office. And instead of you know, sucking it up and embracing reality and saying, okay, he's not our guy, but, uh, you know, we're going to work towards a better solution or a better opportunity four years from now. They just tried to tear him down over and over and over again. He's worse than Hitler. He's literally Hitler. And this is not just the political class. This is the media, which has become a lapdog rather than a watchdog, as it once was or at least once was considered to be an essential watchdog for the liberties of the people. So, I know that's a long build-up to uh, to jump in here, but my point is, people who are questioning the outcome of this election, which is still very much in doubt, are not dead-enders. They're not the equivalent of Saddam Hussein's Ba'athist party that, you know, held on to the bitter end after he was, uh, you know, violently overthrown. Back in 2003, they include a lot of people like myself, who don't really have a dog in the fight, except for, I'm not ready to concede that uh, we've, we've become another banana republic. We've become, you know, a kinder version of North Korea. Sure, everybody votes, but they can only vote, you know, for the dear leader. I'm not ready to go there and I'm not ready to stop asking questions and being a voice of dissent. Now, speaking of voices of dissent, Jay Valentine is becoming one of the most compelling voices of dissent on this uh, official election narrative. And I don't know that what he's saying is absolutely, you know, this is, this is how it's going to suss out, but he has a take that's worth considering. If, if for no other reason, it's, uh, it's different It seems to be pretty well thought out. Time will tell. For what it's worth, though, he says, Trump wins this thing bigly. And before I dive into his his latest column, um, I just want to reiterate something I shared with you yesterday on the show. That may be good from one standpoint from the standpoint of well the powers that be and the media the the people who are lying and who think that you can discard all morality you can you can take machiavelli's playbook and just simply ask what's going to work as opposed to what is right and what is wrong i think they're uh, i think they're, they're really thinking they can pull this off if they just lie to us hard enough and long enough and not convince us so much as just wear us down to where we're finally like, okay, 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 uncle. We've been psychologically abused by the, by the media for quite some time. It started well before Trump. But definitely over this last four years. And so when, uh, when Jay Valentine, among others, says, hey, it's, it's possible Trump is going to win this thing, um, I think he may be right. And listen to the case that he makes here. But also understand, there's, there is a corresponding danger that comes with that. And the danger is, all those dress rehearsals of riots and destruction and burning cities down and victimizing anybody who appears to not be dressed as a black block little Marxist agitator, I think it would unleash a wave of that like we have never seen before. And that's not reason enough to to knuckle under and say, well, then I guess if somebody could get hurt, we should all just go along with it. It's just acknowledging that that could be the excuse. That could be the the flashpoint for those who have been already testing and probing to see how much are we willing to put up with. I've said it before, I'll say it again. We live in interesting times. Not that that's a good thing. So here's what Jay Valentine says. He says, okay, sit back from your sleepless nights and fury every time you turn on Fox News and put down the Chardonnay and take a long, deep breath. Please. He says, on Monday, Scott Adams of Dilbert fame, who was one of the finest critical minds in the podcast world, quoted AmericanThinker.com's article that said Trump was probably going to win this thing. And Scott Adams agreed. In fact, he says uh, Trump is right now a 60% favorite to win this thing. Now, Jay Valentine says, Scott and I are probably the only two people on the planet, other than DJ, meaning Donald Trump, himself, thinking this right now. But he goes, let's go there for a moment. Calm down again. Calm down. He says, Biden is at 290 electoral votes awarded by the mainstream media. Nothing is truly awarded until the state legislatures do so in mid-December. So chill. However, He says the mainstream media is screwing with your heads by calling this election because they hate the guy who called them fake news. And he says, you are letting them do it. Stop. Let's do some arithmetic. Jay Valentine says, Scott, rather, uh, Joe Biden needs 270 electoral votes or more to come out of the basement and become the first chief executive of the most powerful force on the planet with early stage dementia. It is a civil rights thing, so deal with it. If you think that's wrong, you're a racist. (laughs) The 290 electoral vote total includes 20 from Pennsylvania. Now, there's a ton of fraud in that state, he says, and you are seeing all kinds of reports of ballots coming in at 4 a.m. and all that. Skip it. That does not matter. He says, focus people on the Justice Alito Supreme Court order. Justice Alito. Not a man with whom to trifle is in charge of the day-to-day activities for a group of states, and Pennsylvania is one of them. And the justice told Pennsylvania to segregate any vote that came in after 8 p.m. on election night. Now, you'll recall DJ was winning bigly at that point. We're going to come back to this in just a moment, but he makes a pretty strong case for why it may not be the fait accompli that the media would like us to believe it is.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Sharing with
1: you a column from Jay Valentine. This is from AmericanThinker.com. And this is where he lays out the case that, no, Trump not only could still win this thing, but he could win it bigly. And I'm not going to say that this is all verified, written in stone information. Therefore, it is gospel truth and you are duty bound to believe it. It, This is just an alternate viewpoint that I think bears some contemplation. It seems feasible. So that's why I I found it interesting enough to share with you. I'm not telling you this is how it's all going to shake out. This is just plausible. But he says, we got to do some arithmetic first. And so first and foremost, remember, Biden needs 270 electoral votes or more. But that 290 electoral vote total awarded him by the mainstream media includes 20 electoral votes from Pennsylvania. And as Jay Valentine points out, there's a ton of fraud in that state. And you're seeing all kinds of reports of ballots coming in at 4 a.m. and all of that. But he says, skip it. That doesn't matter. Focus instead on the Justice Alito Supreme Court order, because Justice Alito told Pennsylvania to segregate any vote that came in after 8 p.m. on election night. That's when polls officially closed. Now, you remember at that time, DJ, meaning Donald Trump, was winning bigly. Well, around midnight Texas time, the Pennsylvania vote counters stopped counting. And then truckloads of new ballots came in, reportedly voting for Biden and no other candidate for any lower office. Now, the point here, according to Jay Valentine, is the Supreme Court ruled, sort of, in this case already. They said with four justices, led by Justice Alito, that only the Pennsylvania legislature can make or modify voting rules. Read the opinions, says Jay Valentine. This thing is not going to go to Biden. It is black and white in the United States Constitution, a dusty document tourists see in the National Archives in D.C. Well, the Pennsylvania legislature did not allow such voting changes. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court, a quite partisan body, did. Remember, they're not the ones who get to to make the rules concerning voting or modifying voting rules. And the grown-ups at the U.S. Supreme Court said that is judicial overreach. This isn't a good thing for Biden. He then says this week, Justice Alito again said all votes coming in after 8 p.m. on election night need to be segregated. That is what's called a federal court order. That's no parking ticket. Now, the leftists may say, well, this is a racist thing because of the word segregated. (laughs) They are prone to that kind of uh, connection, yes. Maybe separated would be more politically correct. Anyway, Jay Valentine says it's pretty clear with Justice Amy Barrett on the Supreme Court, those votes in Pennsylvania are getting getting backed out right after Rudy Giuliani makes his case. The mainstream media know. They know this. Thus, they're screwing with your heads, and you're up all night eating popcorn looking for any shred of information. To which he says, go to sleep. Biden is at 270, the bare minimum to get out of the basement. And you are in a frenzy, getting no sleep, ignoring the dog, worrying all night long. He says, let's start at 270. I really hate the cliche, how many paths to winning, but I have to go there. Ugh. He says, there are two paths for Trump. There is one for Biden, and Biden's options slowly evaporate every time a new affidavit gets signed testifying about voter fraud. So, he says, let's do the DJ paths, both of them. First, Biden is at 270 after the Supreme Court tosses Pennsylvania. Now There are credible vote counts in five to six states where Biden's lead shrinks by the hour. If even one state falls, it's over for Joe. And instead of a presidential inauguration committee, there's a senior citizen, Assisted Living Solution, That's path one, if you forgot to count. Another independent path that he says he really likes is DJ or Donald Trump saying, in effect, screw it. I'm going to the state legislatures in each of these states, all of which are Republican, and I'm taking my message to the people. He says Trump uses all his negatives for a positive outcome. Brash, punches down, cannot control his unseemly attacks on big media, Fox News, big tech, and rallies in every state in contention. He tweets thousands, perhaps tens of thousands show up. You know it will be rallies beyond imagination. When you calm down and put down the Chardonnay, he says, let me ask you, is there a state senator, state rep in a Republican chamber who will be the one to say, well, Fox News called this election. I think Trump should concede and I vote to certify the fake election results. And he says, before you answer, remember, neither Mitt Romney nor Ben Sasse live in any of these states. So Trump goes above these geeky fraud statistics, taking out one vote at a time, and he makes a bigger pitch. Trump's pitch is that the fraudulent ballots are just a distraction. The real fraud was the collusion of Facebook, Twitter, and Google altering search results so that nobody ever heard about the Hunter laptop, the big guy Joe, getting paid off from China. The real fraud was a Hillary Clinton fawning supporter named Anthony Fauci, who kept giving contradictory advice on a pandemic and then blamed Trump for following his earlier advice. The ugliest fraud was the college of pollsters who issued fake polls day after day showing Trump could not win. And they used these as active voter suppression techniques against you. He says Trump's pitch is that America needs to stand up to a different kind of fraud. The fraud of mass media manipulation. We are in George Orwell territory. You've seen it. The MAGA Nation hats, the wild crowds, the automobile lines for 90 miles in Arizona with stickers, signs, flags created organically just to show DJ support. Going to the people's elected representatives to stop them from certifying a fraud of unimaginable proportions from the media and tech? That, says Jay Valentine, is the story. Only one state legislature, only one, and only one chamber of any of them chokes and says, you know, we aren't going to certify this fraud thing, and Biden, and Biden rather does not get to 270, and then it goes to the House of Representatives. Trump wins there 26 to 24. So, right now, if Joe Biden were conscious, he would be sweating that trip to an assisted living facility. Donald Trump is now playing to his strength, going to the people. This has never failed him and it will not fail him now, says Jay Valentine. Now, I'm going to leave it up to you to decide whether that is plausible or not. It seems plausible to me. That's why I'm sharing it. But I share it with the understanding that uh, we could see very serious uh, bloodshed if the left reacts as they are telling us and demonstrating that they are willing to react when they don't get their way. Almost feels like we're caught between a rock and a hard place in some ways, but uh, there it is. By the way, Paul Craig Roberts, former uh, assistant treasury of the secretary, has a great piece about how the media know there was vote fraud, but he asks, why do the prostitutes deny the obvious? He says the prostitutes speak with one voice and they're unanimous. There was no vote fraud committed by Democrats and that a record number of Americans voted for a president suffering from mental confusion whose campaign rallies went unattended. And I like how Paul Craig Roberts approaches this by asking, well, if the prostitutes are so confident that there is no evidence to back the legal challenges, why are they working overtime to discredit those challenges in advance? All prostitutes are in denial that there's any evidence of fraud. Why not just wait for the challenges to fail? Why all the whistling in the dark? For example, the Boston Globe claims that no election officials doubt the validity of the vote and that Trump has launched a series of long-shot legal challenges in several states aimed at casting doubt on election results despite no evidence of voter fraud. Even the financial news site Bloomberg has falsely declared that there is no evidence of wrongdoing. How can the media know this until the charges have been investigated? I think that's a fair question. Is fraud not a possibility? If so, why has the Secretary of State of Georgia ordered a hand recount of the presidential race? we going to come back to this in just a few moments. Again, commentary from Paul Craig Roberts. You will find it linked in the show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com. We'll
0: be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back to the show.
1: We still have a lot of ground to cover today. But I'm sharing with you a commentary from Paul Craig Roberts. The media know there was vote fraud, so why do they deny it? And I think that's a fair place to go. He talks about how they've done this preemptive uh, strike... To try to shut down any of the questions concerning voting irregularities. And one of the things he asks is, why, uh, look, how can you know there's no evidence of wrongdoing? They've conclusively said, well, there's no evidence of wrongdoing. That's because that's how they want it to be. And they keep saying, nobody's brought any proof that there's any wrongdoing. But by the same token, neither have they shown that. Uh, Thoroughly investigated claims against wrongdoing have come up short because those claims haven't finished being investigated, right? How can they know until the charges are investigated? And Paul Craig Roberts asks if fraud is not a possibility, why has the Georgia Secretary of State ordered a hand count, recount rather, of the presidential race? He says, why did Supreme Court Justice Alito order Pennsylvania election officials to segregate and separately count ballots that arrived after Election Day? Alito ordered the late ballots be kept in a secure, safe, and sealed container separate from other voted ballots. If there's no evidence of fraud, why or what, rather, is the point of such an order? If there's no fraud, what's the basis of the legal challenges being filed by the White House and its counsel, Rudy Giuliani? Now, whatever you may think of Rudy Giuliani, we're talking about a former U.S. attorney who presided over high-profile cases. That's not someone who's going to squander his reputation by filing legal challenges with no evidence. Paul Craig Roberts says there is plenty of evidence. The only question is whether the Republican Party and courts have the stomach for the devastating blow to America's reputation of proving that the Democrats, with the complicity of the media, have attempted to steal a presidential election. The Republicans might be more inclined to protect America's reputation than Trump's presidency. And the courts could worry that establishing election theft would undermine Americans' confidence in their system and lead to political instability. Now, from here, he goes on and he talks about this. This is not like leaders haven't had to deal with this before. Everyone on the Warren Commission knew Oswald was not the assassin of President Kennedy. The 9-11 Commission knew that the official story was false. The 9-11 Commission chairman, co-chairman, and legal counsel later wrote books in which they said that information was withheld from them and that the committee was set up to fail. It was impossible to tell the public in the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis with the Soviet Union that their president had been assassinated by the U.S. Joint Chiefs and the CIA with the complicity of the Secret Service. The Warren Commission understood completely that destroying the public's confidence in military and security leaders at a time of such tension with the Soviet Union would have been disastrous. Same for 9-11. He says the commission was not under any circumstances to tell the public it was a false flag attack necessary to launch two decades of war in the Middle East. And here Paul Craig Roberts says it is certainly the case that red state America knows the election was stolen. So withholding known information is not going to prevent a split in the country. It will simply make it worse by giving red state America proof that the system is broken and cannot be fixed. He says Karl Marx said that audacity, if audacious enough, works, and Lenin proved it. And he says this, I believe, is what the Democrats and prostitutes are relying upon. Interesting. Let's talk for a moment about the Constitution. Judge Andrew Napolitano, and this is not just specific to the election, but to a couple of other issues that we've seen playing out, he asks the question, do we still have a Constitution? The judge says, I've been taking some heat from my friends and colleagues for my steadfast defense of personal liberties and my arguments that the Constitution, when interpreted in accordance with the plain meaning of its words and informed by history, does not permit the government to infringe upon personal freedoms, no matter the emergency or pandemic. He says, for those who agree with me, worry not. We will persevere. For those who trust the government, worry a lot. You are not in good hands. And this is a great little lesson here. This is the reason I wanted to share this with you. Maybe like me, there was a time when you heard people talk about the Constitution, you went, oh boy, here we go. It's like being at a John Birch Society meeting. Well, I'm going to tell you, those birchers, whatever you may think of them, are people who love this country. And they're right on most everything that I've heard from them. So the judge reminds us the purpose of the Constitution is to establish the government and to limit it. Some of the limitations are written in the Constitution itself. Most of the limitations that pertain to personal freedoms are found in the Bill of Rights, the First Ten Amendments. Now, these amendments were ratified to restrain the federal government from infringing upon personal liberties. Since the enactment of the 14th Amendment in 1868 and subsequent litigation, these amendments, for the most part, restrain the states as well. The courts have characterized these protected liberties as fundamental. So, rights to thought, speech, press, assembly, worship, self-defense, privacy, travel, property ownership, interstate commercial activities, and fair treatment from government are plainly articulated or rationally inferred in the first eight amendments. The ninth is a catch-all, which declares that the enumeration of rights in the first eight shall not mean there are no other rights that are fundamental, and the government shall not disparage those other rights. And, of course, the tenth reflects that the states have reserved powers to themselves. Now, he says, the ninth was especially important to its author, James Madison, because of his view that natural rights, known today as fundamental rights, are integral to each person, and they are too numerous to list. In the next century, the anti-slavery crusader, Lysander Spooner, would explain it thusly, quote, a man's natural rights are his own against the whole world, and any infringement of them is equally a crime, whether committed by one man or by millions, whether committed by one man calling himself a robber <clears throat> or by millions calling themselves a government, end quote. Napolitano says natural rights collectively constitute the moral ability and sovereign authority of every human being to make personal choices, free from government interference or government permission. He says Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence that the government derives all its powers from the consent of the governed. In fact, I think uh, Jefferson used the word just powers from the consent of the governed. And Madison understood the Ninth Amendment to declare that our personal choices are insulated from government interference so long as their exercise does not impair another's rights. Now, Napolitano says from this, it follows that if governments interfere with our personal choices and we have not consented to their power to interfere, well, then that interference is invalid unlawful, and because our personal choices are essentially protected from governmental interference by the Bill of Rights, unconstitutional. Now he says, back to the present day restraints during this pandemic. The current interference with the exercise of rights protected by the Bill of Rights devolve around travel, assembly, interstate commercial activities, and the exercise of religious beliefs. The judge says these infringements have all come from state governors who claim the power to do so, and they raise three profound constitutional issues. He says the first is, do governors have inherent power in an emergency to craft regulations that carry the force of law? Now, the answer is no. The Guarantee Clause of the Constitution mandates a Republican, meaning lowercase r, form of government in the states. That means the separation of powers into three branches, each with a distinct function, that cannot be constitutionally performed by either of the other two. Since only a representative legislature can write laws that carry criminal penalties and incur the use of force, the governor of a state cannot constitutionally write laws. The second constitutional issue is, can state legislatures delegate away to governors their lawmaking powers? Again, the answer is no, because the separation of powers prevents one branch of government from ceding to another branch its core powers. The separation was crafted not to preserve the integrity of each branch, but to assure the preservation of personal liberty by preventing the accumulation of too much power in any one branch. He says, we're not talking about a state legislature delegating to a board of medical examiners in the executive branch the power to license physicians. We're talking about delegating away a core power, the authority to create crimes and craft punishments. Such a delegation would be an egregious violation of the Guarantee Clause. Now, the third constitutional issue is can a state legislature enact laws that interfere with personal liberties protected by the Bill of Rights, prescribe punishments for violations of those laws, and authorize governors to use force to compel compliance? And again, the answer is no because all government in America is subordinate to the natural rights articulated in the Bill of Rights and embraced in the Ninth Amendment. It's a marvelous article. You will find it in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. Take a read and be sure to leave a comment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the final segment of this hour.
1: Again, I strongly recommend take a look at Judge Andrew Napolitano's commentary published this morning on LewRockwell.com. Do we still have a constitution? He says, we we should be rejoicing that there is resistance to gubernatorial ignorance and arrogance that disregards the Bill of Rights. And this is particularly in relation to these government or these governors' mandates in various states regarding COVID-19. The judge says we need resistance to tyranny in order to stay free. Power unresisted continues to grow and to corrupt. And he says history teaches that most people prefer the illusion of safety to the cacophony of liberty. The only reason we have civil liberties today is because generations of determined minorities, starting with the revolutionaries in the 1770s, have fought for them. I liked this last paragraph, too, because he says, he comes right out and speaks the truth here. Today we are governed by dangerous men and women, for they have taken away our ability to make personal choices. They have used force to compel compliance, and in doing that, they've not only violated their oaths to uphold the Bill of Rights, they've committed the criminal acts of nullifying our rights. He says, by using the powers of state governments to do this, they've made themselves candidate for federal crime prosecutions or federal criminal prosecutions when saner days return. And by the way, there are many who are uh, eagerly trying to push their legislatures. Hey, uh, we need to pass some legislation that indemnifies us and uh, holds us uh, harmless for any of the decisions we made regarding, you know, COVID-19 lockdowns. Cowards. Cowards. They don't even dare put their name on the dotted line and stand by the policies that they have so uh, eagerly forced upon the people. I don't say this lightly, but in a saner day, the tar would be heating up and the bags of feathers would be being collected. Politicians were a little bit more responsive, I think, in those days. I wonder why. All right. Enough chest beating. Uh, so I don't look to Oregon as a source of very much good news ever. I think back about uh, four years ago, four and a half years ago, when my friend uh, Lavoie Finnicum was murdered by Oregon State Police. And I've had a pretty bad taste in my mouth ever since then for that state. However, I will tell you that the best news coming out of this last election cycle, surprisingly, is coming from Oregon. And I have an article here by Hannah Cox published on the Foundation for Economic Education about how Oregon has taken the lead in ending the war on drugs. Now, I understand for some people that's going to be like, whoop knee jerk, why did my knee jerk? Drugs are bad, okay? Yeah, they can be. But you know what's worse? Trashing people's liberties in an attempt to prevent people from utilizing drugs. Hannah Cox says last week, Oregon voted to decriminalize the possession of all drugs. Ballot measure 110 passed with a whopping 59% of the vote. Numerous other states voted to legalize recreational cannabis on Election Day as well, namely Arizona, New Jersey, Montana, and South Dakota. Across the board, voters struck down policies that supported the war on drugs at every opportunity they were given. But she says Oregon's initiative is by far the most sweeping progression we've seen on this front to date. It's also different from actions taken in other states because the vote did not legalize drug, drugs, rather, but rather decriminalized them. This means it removed criminal penalties attached to the possession of drugs, but didn't all out legalize them, which is a very important distinction. Beginning February 1st, Oregonians caught carrying small amounts of illegal substances will be met with a $100 fine. Now, if they choose not to pay it, or if they're unable to, they can agree to a health assessment at an addiction recovery center instead, where they may be prescribed customized treatment plans. Now, the ballot measure also expanded access to recovery treatments, housing, and harm reduction services measures the state will fund through reallocation of tens of millions of dollars from Oregon's cannabis tax. Additionally, it redirects the money saved from not arresting, prosecuting, and caging people for drug possession to treatment services as well. The Oregon Criminal Justice Commission estimates that Measure 110 will reduce drug possession convictions in the state by 90%. Ultimately, this directive removes drug use from the purview of the criminal justice system and chooses to instead focus on treatment opportunities. Now, for those reasons, Hannah Cox says the campaign found strong support in the state's medical and health care communities, which have witnessed firsthand the abject failure of drug criminalization. And while Oregon may be the first state in our country to try this approach, it isn't exactly an unprecedented strategy. And I applaud her for pointing out, it's been nearly two decades ago. In the midst of a heroin epidemic that was ravaging the country, Portugal decriminalized most forms of drug possession. Drug trafficking stayed illegal, <clears throat> but drug users were viewed as ill instead of being treated as criminals. Instead of being imprisoned, prison, she says drug users were taken before a drug court Made up of psychologists, social workers, and legal experts who sought health focused solutions when they were apprehended. So we've had two decades now to look at Portugal and say, okay, how did that work? And I remember when this came about. I remember watching the naysayers. Well, oh, you just watch, they're going to see the worst thing ever happen. Well, here's what actually happened the data shows it was an overwhelming success. Arrest rates for drug-related offenses have dropped by 60% since 2001, while the number of people enrolled in treatment programs went up a reciprocal amount, too. Portugal's drug overdose death rate has plummeted. HIV infections fell from 1,575 cases in 2000 to only 78 cases in 2013. Meanwhile, Portugal's drug usage rate has remained lower than the average use rates in Europe and drastically lower than those found in the U.S. Now, Portugal's case study shows that decriminalization doesn't necessarily lead to higher drug use rates. That's what the critics were all saying. You watch, everybody's going to be on drugs. Hannah Cox says, but despite the country's success, others have been slow to follow in its footsteps, likely due to the entrenched special interests working to keep these policies in place. And I'm sorry to say, one of those special interests is law enforcement looking to hang on to some job security. Hannah Cox says it has been said that those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it. And America is no exception as we seem to be living in a groundhog's day of perpetually failing policy. In the 1920s, alcohol prohibition led to an increase in consumption. The production of more dangerous beverages a rise in organized crime, rampant corruption among public officials, a court and prison system stretched to the brim, and an increase in the crime rate. In fact, she asks, does that sound familiar? And yet Americans seemingly learned nothing, in this period from, our, from, nothing from this period in our history and instead tried the whole charade again with the war on drugs. She says all of our government's of all of these the government's colossally bad ideas the war on drugs has stood out for its horrific disruption of the family unit destabilization of whole communities devastation of millions of lives and utter inability to curb addiction in any meaningful way and that's not even mentioning the fiscal and economic cost of this benef- of or economic costs of this behemoth rather in other words by every available metric the war on drugs has failed the country has spent well over a trillion dollars enforcing drug criminalization in fact she says it's estimated that the federal government spends nine point two million dollars every day just to incarcerate people for drug-related offenses states spend another seven billion dollars or so a year and this means we incarcerate hundreds of thousands of individuals for nonviolent drug offenses these people then can't work a job and contribute to society while in prison, and of course they have a very hard time returning to a productive life once they're released. Hannah Cox says these are people whose families and children struggle to make ends meet without their support. And most importantly, these are people who are not getting the help they need. In fact, a person is most likely to overdose in the weeks after they're first released from prisons. In other words, the social costs of the war on drugs are are staggering, And we do all of this for horrible results, meaning Americans account for less than 5% of the world's population, but they consume 80% of all opioids produced globally. Throughout its reign, the drug war has contributed to an increase in overdoses led to the creation of violent drug cartels, fostered unemployment, and safeguarded corrupt public officials. And Hannah Cox says... Anyone can look at the current picture and recognize the war on drugs has failed. But for those who studied economics, the outcomes have been predictable and predicted for centuries. It's a marvelous article. Check it out for yourself. It's in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com.
0: is The Brian Hyde Show.